Today, we talk to Elamaya Tailfeathers and Kathleen Hepburn, the writers and directors behind The Body Remembers When the World Broke Open, about their approach of shooting most of the film as a single continuous shot, and the unique challenges of pulling that off while shooting on old-school 16mm celluloid film. The episode was recorded shortly before the film won three Canadian Screen Awards for Elamaya and Kathleen's writing for their direction and one for Normally, the film's cinematographer. Well-deserved. Yeah, congratulations. Welcome to Film Formally. We're here today with the co-writers and co-directors of the film The Body Remembers When the World Broke Open, Elmaya Tailfeathers and Kathleen Hepburn. Hello, folks. Hello. Hello. The movie is about two indigenous women who meet in the streets of East Vancouver. Uh, Isla is a financially secure woman played by Elmaya. She sees Rosie, a pregnant woman who has just suffered physical abuse from her boyfriend, played by Violet Nelson. The boyfriend is not played by Violet Nelson. <laughs> the pregnant woman is. And she's standing barefoot at a bus stop. And Isla takes her hand. And from that moment on, the remainder of the movie unfolds in a single unbroken shot. The movie is actually up for six Canadian Screen Awards. It's up for Best Picture. Normally, it's up for Best Cinematography. You two are up for Best Direction and Original Screenplay. And there are two nominations for the Best Performance by an Actress for both Elmaya and for Violet. So by the time listeners hear this, we're going to know the results. But for now, good luck. We want to talk about the choices and the challenges that arose for you when shooting in long takes on the movie. And we also want to kind of specifically dive into something unusual about this movie within the landscape of single shot movies. Namely, it was not filmed with digital cameras, but on 16 millimeter film. So I think a good way for us to sort of start and lay the groundwork here would be to ask you both briefly about your own filmmaking careers to date, especially because both of you worked in different mediums than each other up to this point. So Elmaya, you started out in front of the camera, right, as an actor, and most of your work has been digital up to this point. Is that right? Yeah, I, I started out as an actor. I lived all over the place growing up, but predominantly Alberta, and I didn't think that being a filmmaker was even a possibility, you know, like coming from Southern Alberta and not really knowing of any Indigenous filmmakers other than Alanisa Bomsuin. I like it just it just didn't even seem possible in my realm of understanding this world. So I started out as an actor and went to Vancouver Film School for acting and then acted professionally in film and TV for a while and grew um, really frustrated with the industry as a woman of color as an indigenous person. And so I went back to school. I went to UBC and studied First Nation studies and did a minor in women's and gender studies. And um, yeah, that's where I learned to operate a camera and editing software and made my first short film. But yeah, I've only worked with film once prior to The Body Remembers. I, I used film on my short documentary called Bichtosh, which is about my complicated relationship with my father and kind of the my parents' mythical love story and the dissolution of their marriage. But yeah, this was my first time really working with film and it was such an incredible experience. 
Right. And Kathleen, for you, uh, I think I'm right that it was, it's sort of an inverse situation where didn't you start uh, mostly working in film? We, we both went to the same school. And I think at the point you were in it a few years ahead of me, they were still exclusively working in film, right? Yeah. So I was, I think I graduated in 2007. So uh, from Simon Fraser Film School. So we started uh, in our first and second years uh, shooting on 16 editing on 16 on a flatbed. So I sort of have always worked with film except for one project, one short that I did. Um, and I've just always loved it. I think, you know, I came up through the camera department uh, when I was starting out. So cameras have always been, I've always kind of been a bit of a camera nerd and, and film is just for me a much more exciting process than digital. Like there's something about it that you know, not seeing the image developed right in front of you gives it sort of uh, higher stakes. And, and I think you just sort of, you're more prepared and more focused. And it's just a, I prefer that process. The moment when the decision came up to do a single take, how did that come up? Was there sort of discussion about whether it was the right approach for the film? Prior to, to um, co-directing this film, I hadn't done that much direction in terms of directing narrative film. Uh, it was mostly documentary. And the film is inspired by an experience that I had um, in the same neighborhood where we shot the film. And it's very similar to what happened in the film, although it's fictionalized. And I, I've been thinking about that story for years, kind of wondering what to do with it and decided to try and turn it into a film and knew that it couldn't be a short film, that a short film just wouldn't do justice to the story and that there wouldn't be room for those kind of uncomfortable silences and those moments where nothing was being said. And so I decided that I wanted to turn it into a feature. Um, and I've collaborated quite a few times in the past before, and I find it's a great way to learn through doing. And I've admired Kathleen's work for a very long time. And I knew that I wanted to turn this into a, a real-time film. I wasn't necessarily sure exactly what that meant, but that it would be a film that would, you know, unfold in this couple of hours, this intense encounter between two women who are complete strangers. And so I approached Kathleen about the possibility of co-writing and co-directing. And then that's kind of how the conversation started and then eventually evolved into doing it in a single take. And there were, there were a lot of questions around using film as a medium if we were going to do the single take, there was a while when we were thinking about doing digital and our DP normally had like made this vow to himself that the next two films that he would make would be uh, shot on film. And so there was, yeah, there was a lot going on there in terms of making that decision. Right. Was, was the vow the deciding factor or were you guys, <laughs> were, were you guys just like going back and forth about, cause for me, this is, I've almost exclusively worked in digital, except my first year at Simon Fraser, I shot on 16 millimeter and second year too. But, and after that, I was just, the medium terrifies me because I can't see what's going on. I'm not, I'm not brave. But for me, the idea of not only not being able to see what I'm getting during this very high stakes situation of a protracted roving shot, but you guys had to stitch together multiple takes because unlike a digital camera, a film camera has a fairly limited magazine size. In other words, the film only runs for like 10, 11 minutes. So was that, was, was 
Was that ever a point of terror for you, like it would be for me, in other words? Yeah, I mean, definitely. And the conversation, I guess, with Norm was was more around how can we do it? I think because we both, I think the whole team, we were all pretty much on board with the idea that we wanted to shoot film, but um, we couldn't really see a way that it was possible to do it with the idea of the continuous take because of this very reason um, with the with the eleven minute mag. So. Norm came up, he did so much work and came up with this plan of, of using this real-time transitioning technique that, that he's sort of developed. But yeah, of course, it was terrifying that, that we would run out. That was the biggest tension for me, not being, you know, being watching the monitor as we were shooting is watching the, the time code go closer and closer to, you know, 10 minutes are they oh, going to no. get through to the next transition point in time? You know, and we only rolled out uh, one time. So um, I'd love to hear more about how. Actually, this is now reminding me of, reminding me of a film that wasn't even in my head going into this. But remind me of the film uh, Victoria, which also features another long take. I heard from someone who worked in the film a behind the scenes anecdote that I thought was really telling, where. Apparently, um, the driver, I think, got lost in the car. So if you heard the behind the scenes audio of that, it was actually like the camera operator, I think, like cursing up a storm. And then that actually ended up in the film, except they obviously cut that audio. Yeah, I think it was like the director shoot. The driver was trying to turn left and the crew was right there or something. So they were. Yeah. One thing that you've brought up that I want to touch on. So you have these real time transition points where someone's holding the camera and then it gets swapped off into someone else's hands. And I want to get more into the logistics of how you pull that off uh, in, in different situations. But was that, that brings up the fact that you shot, you would shoot in continuous takes. You would just go for, for the roughly two hours that it took to shoot the movie. One of, sort of the inspirations for doing the continuous take was theater, like the process of, of theater. So we actually rehearsed for four weeks and we rehearsed for five days with our full crew so that everything was choreographed. But yeah, we were, we were inspired by the process of theater, of being able to just keep the momentum going, especially in terms of performance. Uh, Violet Nelson had never acted before. Um, and so we wanted to give her the opportunity to sort of have the most naturalistic performance possible and you know the way the film is conventionally shot it's completely out of chronological order and it's a very challenging role to play and it's also very there's a lot of nuance in her performance and we thought that in treating it like theater and being able to just go through the action from beginning to end we would be able to you know set the ground for a very natural performance and then also there's a certain amount of risk and energy that builds with the potential of, of risk and failure. And so all of that was, you know, informed our, our decisions. So the idea of, of pausing was never really on the table. That's interesting that you just started from that point of, okay, this is what's best for the actor. So this is how we're going to do it. And I, on one hand, it, it's, it's intimidating because you have to do the whole thing in one go. But I imagine on the other hand, it's a bit of a relief on your scheduling because you don't have to worry about the light massively changing between two of your takes or anything like that. Well, not exactly because we had to worry about, because we knew we had these stitch points that we would be able to cut between takes. Um, so weather continuity was a big problem. 
to think about. And, and also just because Norm as a DP couldn't change any lighting once we started. So our, our gaffer was sort of leapfrogging ahead and tweaking depending on what the weather was doing, what the light was doing, you know, moments before we started. So it was still all of those things. It was just like very, very condensed into a, an hour and 45 minutes of shooting. This actually all gets at a, an interesting distinction that I've been trying to sort out in my head about the difference between a long shot and a long take. Where, you know, to me, I always thought of a long shot as what you see on screen, right? Most, the majority of long take, you can't see the air quotes listeners, but I made air quotes. Um, (laughs) Long take movies are actually stitched together um, from multiple shots. But those shots are usually not shot continuously, right? They're shot like, you know, you have one day you spend shooting the two minutes of whatever 1917 you need to shoot, right? And then the next day is the next shot. But then those are all stitched together into one supposedly continuous shot on screen and then you have long takes right like um, a true long take film would be something like russian arc right where that whole film was actually shot in a continuous reel of a hard drive which i i, I can't imagine the stress of that steady cam operator on like minute 89 <laughs> but in in your film I, I i can't even get it straight in my head because it's i think so ingenious in its complexity where you have a temporally continuous and by temporally i mean on a timeline continuous moment being recorded with multiple cameras all daisy chained together did that kind of temporal existential question ever enter the conversation or uh, was it more of just the practical like oh this is obviously the best way to get it done i think once we decided we were gonna do the continuous take we just moved forward with the conversation like all right how do we get this done um and it involved a lot of conversations and a lot of problem solving but that's kind of what film is like half the time i feel like it's just problem solving and trying to figure out the logistics so to be honest, like once we once we'd gone through the rehearsal process and had all of those long conversations, the actual process of doing this continuous take was quite smooth and actually easy in comparison to, you know, other features that I've acted in, for instance, because we, we did it, you know, we did the single take in five days and then we had a couple of extra days for the kind of like prologue scenes. So we shot the entire feature in that amount of time, which is a, a really fast production process. A lot of rehearsals, though. Yeah, we had four weeks with, with, with just Maya and myself and Violet, and then a week with the whole team. But Norm was in there for the last, I would say, the last week of our acting rehearsals as well, just to start, because he was actually, you know, almost like another character in the film. Uh, having to respond to the actors every move, I guess, (laughs) at every moment. So yeah, I'd say four weeks plus a week of camera. So was it you would, during rehearsal, you would block out the movement of the actor. And then when Norm comes in, do you already have camera positions set out or do you just have some ideas for them? Yeah, it was contingent on a few things like locations. For instance, we didn't have all of our locations locked down when we started rehearsal and actually one of our locations changed like just a few days before we went to camera. So it was all of those things. Like we, we treated the the rehearsal process like theater. So we had uh, like a rehearsal space set up um, at our production office and blocked it out that way. Um, 
you know, worked through the script and the text and all of that. Um, and then when Norm came in, we we shot listed everything in detail. But of course, things changed once we actually were able to get into the space and into the location. So we had kind of like a general map, but it, it wasn't finalized until we were actually in in our locations. Yeah. And because we were, we only had one lens to work with, um, blocking and camera angles were, you know, so connected because it was really the actors creating the close-up or wide and, and where Norm was in relation to them. With my very limited experiences with having to kind of stick to a single shot for an extended period, uh, or at least even watching other films that do, I'm, I'm always very aware of the off-screen space and how that impacts because when you're editing a film you know you every time one edits you're in my opinion at least telling the audience okay now this is a more relevant viewpoint than the one you had for this next moment but when you're shooting in a single continuous take you're kind of stuck with the, the always telegraphing to the audience this is the viewpoint we are choosing for you yeah i mean i think it's it's a similar process except that you know you're doing the editing in the shot listing instead of in post, you know, you don't have other choices. So you're still making all those same decisions about what we want the audience to be focusing on. Um, we're just doing it sooner. I think the challenge was trying to create, keep, keep the tension of the scenes um, and create a forward momentum. Because when you have a whole film where it's just two characters talking essentially for the entire film, there's very little actual action going on. Everything becomes like a very delicate balance between letting things fall flat and, and holding up that tension. So I think a lot of the choices we made in blocking and, and camera angles was to support this sort of trying to keep momentum going, even when nothing's really happening. <laughs> I think you, Kathleen, have mentioned in an interview that the sound mixing was almost akin to what the picture editing would normally be, uh, the sound design and the sound mix. Is it because of that sort of thing, of that idea of, okay, we can't cut to show people what's important, but we can mix the sound a little bit differently in order to draw focus to another part of the scene that might not be on screen? The one thing I'm thinking of, Maya, is in the taxi scene with the texting. And there, I mean, there was, there's a, sound is so important, I think, in, in any film. It's always a huge factor in, in building the world and the tension and, and the tone. But for us, because it was one of the tools that we could manipulate, it became even more important. Yeah. And we had, you know, diegetic sound. <laughs> we had a really fantastic sound recordist and sound designer. So the film was um, a co-production with Norway. And so nobody on our crew had done this sort of single take before, except for our sound guy from Norway, who was this like giant um, chain smoker guy who's really great to have on set. <laughs> but he had done it a number of times before and the sound was so complex because um, I think at one point they had 11 or 12 uh, lav mics running at once and mics had to be planted throughout our different locations and so yeah it was a very complex process. Often there's this focus on the camera which is you know Norm is such a, a brilliant cinematographer and working with him was you know such a beautiful process but sound often gets left out of the conversation and the complexity of doing a continuous take 
with you know the the live sound recording was was uh, his work was really incredible and there were all these sort of barriers that we encountered like you were mentioning the the space off screen so you know in the scene in Isla's apartment there's a whole crew in there along with these two women and it's supposed to be this like quiet intimate scene and we shot it in this beautiful old house that had very creaky floors so I think the day before we started filming Charlie who played Kat uh, works with wood and carpentry and Charlie came in and fixed the floor for us the day before we started filming (laughs) so yeah so you know there was a lot that we had to to deal with in terms of the the live sound recording and then our um, sound designer came over from Norway just for a couple of days um, and watched us work and then recorded what he could in our neighborhood, getting, you know, all of those natural sounds. Um, and it was quite funny in the, the sound design process, working with a European sound designer, because things sound different there, right? Uh, like oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, cars, motorcycles, sirens, crossing crossing signals at the light, like all of these things were different. And mm-hmm. so there were all these funny moments where um, we we encountered this kind of like yeah difference. Yeah, spent hours on YouTube looking up cro- Vancouver crosswalk sound. <laughs> <laughs> Your recordist was Engar Pedersen, and one of the films that he's worked on that's a single take movie that I have seen is Utoya July 22nd. So as he's on set, you've already got enough problems as a sound recordist during long takes of having to dodge the camera, dodge the actors and still be able to crane your boom mic in to get a coherent sound of everything. Yeah. I mean, I think the thing that's most remarkable is like not, not noticing him being on set was incredible because he was this huge guy but he was just, I mean, we didn't as directors maybe see much of what he was doing in terms of practical work. And we had this sort of side project that actually was very important to the whole film, which is this Indigenous youth mentorship project. Yeah, We hired 11 young Indigenous people who wanted to work in film or had you know experience in film. And they worked directly with the head of each department. So Peter Robinson was our uh, sound mentee and he worked directly with Ingar and it was kind of like this baptism by fire of like being thrown into this like single take feature and having to you know run 11 or 12 labs at once and figure it all out so that I think that was a really incredible process for him and then Solomon Chiniki was our uh, our DP mentee and again working on their first features in this capacity, I can't even imagine what that process must have been like. Um, one aspect of the specific kind of granular execution, scene by scene, of the the I call it the take that I I found really jumped out at me on my second viewing, which was uh, just yesterday, was a lot of the scenes are kind of segmented into two medium close-ups, where the camera will be back in the back of the room, panning over between um, our two leads, but during the scene in the shelter, this time something kind of keyed in my brain where I went, okay, so Isla and Rosie are sitting right next to each other in a space that might be in the same shot, right? It could easily be a two shot. But Norm at, in the moment is short-siding each character, which means framing them kind of conspicuously on frame left or right and kind of segmenting them into different frames. And this is finally kind of 
broken in the very last taxi ride when the camera position for the first time shifts into an extended two shot. And I can't help but think that this was all extremely intentional, at least, or at least maybe intuitively arrived at. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely intention there. I think it's, you know, some of it is also framing um, what works. But but for the safe house, or for the whole film, I'd say we had to make very conscious decisions about who was on camera when and and who's who's seen you know whose scene it was and i think for the safe house in particular we wanted to make sure that we were giving rosie the space and and showing that the whole world is sort of watching her pressuring her to make this choice and trying to feel that that pressure building on her more and more as she comes to the point where she actually has to make this decision you know so some of those decisions were informed by technical logistics and the space but for the most part we we thought very consciously about who would be framed and how they would be framed in each moment we we didn't want this to come across as kind of like a white savior narrative even though Isla is indigenous you know there's all these complexities of of benefiting from light skin privilege all of that so we didn't want in any way to take away um, from Rosie's agency and power we wanted this to be a two-hander where these two characters um, have equal footing and equal power in the film and that meant being very thoughtful about who was in front of the camera in each moment and yeah, uh, like Kathleen was saying at the safe house, it was really about showing how the weight of the world is on Rosie's shoulders in that moment. And yeah, the 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 van scene at the end was really complicated. The the taxi scenes I think were the some of the most complicated to to figure out, and we needed it to look like it was a different taxi as well. <laughs> And then also, you know, having the, the two characters in the same frame, so you're feeling their final moments together. Yeah, so it, we ended up settling on on that frame, and, and it, it worked. We were kind of, like, concerned that it might feel artificial in the way that they're seated next to each other. But I, I've, I feel that all of that sort of disappears because you're you're really in this moment with these two women, and you've been on this journey with them for the last two hours, you know. Or 90 minutes. <laughs> They're kind of on a more equal ground at that point. So having them both in frame sort of allows you to, to you know both of them by now and you can and you can feel what each of them is feeling. And then having them sort of together side by side has sort of like the weight of the relationship that they've built. Yeah, um, I wanted to, the, the taxi rides are one of the most logistically fascinating parts of the movie. And this is partly because I just, I know the area very well. <laughs> One of the interesting things to me about movies that take place in long roving shots is that you get a really uncommon sense of spatial grounding. That is like most movies, even if they're real time, it's kind of hard to mentally map out the entire space of the film. The cab rides have lots of twists and turns, and I'm, I'm fairly certain that a lot of that is because you had to match the length of the dialogue, and so you had to take some turns that you normally wouldn't if you were actually navigating that part of East Van. I remember recognizing the corner that uh, my partner used to live in, uh, in her apartment and thinking, oh, what an odd route. But, <laughs> but it's not something that, you're, you, that 
most audiences would be at all consciously aware of. But to me, it, it feels like it kind of works because those cab rides are often where the biggest swings in the power dynamics happen. Well, I think uh, from a script perspective, we knew that those cab rides were going to be tricky because they could potentially be very long. Um, we don't know if there's going to be traffic. It's a lot of time to fill and they needed to have, again, momentum and tension and character development and all of that stuff that needs to happen in every part of the film. But we were just confined to a very strict space um, and time. So I think there needed to be a little bit more dynamic in those scenes to make up for the fact that, you know, we were very confined for that time. Yeah. And then there were other things to consider, like East Vancouver, like capturing the spirit and essence of this place and all of its complexities. And um, the cab rides were kind of an opportunity to, to, to do that, to be able to show the way that East Hastings, for instance, is rapidly gentrifying. And Rosie lives in the, the Raymer um, social housing um, developments, and that's like a, a really important place historically in East Vancouver. So all of those decisions also informed the route of the cab ride. And we did a, a few car rides where we would like map it out and actually like read the dialogue together. Norm would be driving and we'd be trying to figure out the route. Um, and then of course there was like technical logistics. Like there's there's one street that's like cobblestone or something right around McLean and Clark area. And then there's these speed bumps and Tyler Hagen was actually camera operating inside the taxis. And that was like an incredibly complicated thing to do. Um, you know, trying to capture both of Rosie and Isla on camera and then also dealing with like the super bumpy road. Oh and, yeah, Devin, Devin um, I know has questions about Tyler's operation in the cab. <laughs> yeah, you, you've inadvertently, I try not to ask like, how'd you do that questions? But like the, the camera getting in and out of the car, I I, I was like, uh, how did you do that? And that was going to be my one gimme on that. And my other question was going to be, when did Tyler operate? So you've uh, answered the two of those. <laughs> That's really cool. Was, would Norm then just ride ahead of the cab and get in the next location and be ready to take the camera? Was that how that worked or? Yeah, so we had like a little follow van or a big follow van, a black, big one of those big black sprinters and, you know, hooked up with all the antennas so we could monitor and the audio guy would jump in the back there. And so we were following behind and then, yeah, Norm would jump out, the camera assistants would jump out, sound guy would jump out, get ready, he would get the camera passed back and it was pretty wild. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Just, just while we're on the technical thing, because I'm kind of curious, you had three cameras to work with. Was that the number? And then you kind of had to leapfrog them throughout by reloading them as you went. Was that how that worked? Yeah, we had three, but we only used two. The third was a backup. Oh, wow. That's even more. Yeah. Uh, so the camera systems were A+. plus. You've mentioned that actually shooting went very smoothly, which you would hope, especially if you're trying to make it easier on the actors, that it would it, the shooting itself would go really smoothly. But was there a particular location or scene when, while you were shooting, it was especially feeling really touch and go or like, okay, things, this is where things could fall apart in a heartbeat? Yeah, well, Maya mentioned that we lost a location a few days before shooting. And that was part of the reason was just like, there was just so many variables there that seemed too risky for us to to move forward. That was one thing. We had... You want to talk about the other? <laughs> um, 
which part the the day that it all fell apart or <laughs> i guess so <laughs> i was gonna ask what happened to the other four takes so. a, well we used uh we used sequences from about two or three days uh, but there was one day i think it might have been day four where everything kind of just fell apart it was just like you know you have those days where it just feels like the universe is against you. <laughs> the day that it didn't work out was just like this beautiful, random, sunny, hot day, and it just ruined everything. But there were also all these other technical things. Like I didn't realize that a, uh, a window was supposed to be left open for our lighting team at the safe house. And I like... <laughs> I closed the window because I could hear people outside. So it's, it's the scene where Isla's in the bathroom. So I closed the window because I could hear people outside. <laughs> and then as Isla sits down to go to the bathroom, this like hand appears on the window <laughs> in the background, you know, trying. And it, it was, who was it? Was it Jordan on our? It was Jordan. Yeah. yeah. Just like frantically trying to like open the window and figure out what's going on. <laughs> Um, salute to jordan yeah you know, exactly that feeling <laughs> and then, you're frantically thinking in your head maybe we can composite that handout in post-production <laughs> yeah <laughs> and then we we ran out of uh film on that one as well like we had to stop and then restart at a point that we never really had planned for and then we ran out of film in the cab it was basically just like everything didn't work out so it wasn't like it was absolute you know it, the process was absolutely perfect and there were no no bumps in the road yeah but i guess the most the least predictable was always the cab because you just never know what's going to happen outside yeah and I, I would say that like given the this project's kind of resources um it's doing a lot of stuff that you're kind of told at least i i was always told that you can't do without millions and millions and millions of dollars stuff like shooting on film stuff like uh shooting a single 80 well, 80 plus minute sequence unbroken. That's true. I think, I think you have to, I think what we took away from this process is like, you can do whatever you want if you just work hard enough to do it. <laughs> yeah. I, I, like Kathleen said, I think this film just kind of goes to show that you can kind of just do anything as long as you, you know, you work hard at it, you put in the work. I was listening to an interview with the filmmaker Alice Rohrwacher, who, who directed Happy as Lazaro and The Wonders. And she was saying that for Happy as Lazaro, you know, they they built this, essentially this, this village or this community, and they actually had to grow a tobacco farm, which just blows my mind. Like, <laughs> you know, that's, that's really like slow filmmaking, and that's what they had to do to to make it work. And yeah, I think each project sort of calls for its own process. And I feel like I've learned so much about, um, you know, the ways that we don't have to work, especially if, you know, if you're used to being on, in terms of my experience with narrative films, it's largely been as an actor on these sort of larger sets where there's a bigger budget and everything's kind of done in this very specific way. And um, there's kind of like this toxic hierarchy that exists as well. And that was something that we we really worked hard to to not bring onto our set. It was really important that the film was kind of rooted in community and making sure that that we were doing this in a you know in a respectful way, especially given the subject matter. And I think that reflected also in our process and our 
ability just to like be brave and trust each other and um, try something different. Well, part of what really moved me about hearing about the making of this film was um, I've always been very averse to large crews. Um, uh, me and Will and our kind of collaborators, um, we laid this out more in our interview with Sophie a while back, but um, we tend to work with kind of radically small crews and uh, casts for the type of films we want to make. And uh, seeing a film like this come out of a larger community of people involved in the making of the film uh, is a nice little signifier to me of like, wow, um, it's possible with more than six people. <laughs> Yeah. Do you folks see yourself, do you, do you finish this and think, you know, I'm sure you're not thinking, oh, I'm just going to do every film in one long take, but do you find yourself thinking, yeah, I, I'm going to use this as one of my tools way more often. I'm going to, I'm going to not shoot entire films, but like maybe more entire scenes in one take. I mean, I'm so far from shooting anything else right now, so it's hard to imagine deciding how to shoot something, but I think it really has to come from the project. I think I do have a lot of long shots in most of my films, but yeah, I don't think it's something I would think about uh, unless it was really coming from the material. Yeah. I think each project sort of calls for its own process, but I definitely uh, on my next narrative film, I, I want to be able to have a long rehearsal process. I think what we built with Violet especially was, was pretty incredible and so I want to be able to do that with the next film. Um, you know, Violet had never acted before, and that that was a big risk to take. And I'm so glad that we took it because she oh, gave she's such an incredible. In yeah, she's yeah. she's amazing, and I hope to you know again work with non actors or first time actors and be able to implement a long rehearsal process like that um, because. I, I think with film so often there's a, a large focus on the technical logistics of like how you're actually going to shoot it. And there's not always a focus on the actual performance and working with actors. And then it ends up showing like you have this, you know, beautifully, uh, beautifully done film technical, technically wise, but the, the performance is lacking. And um, so, yeah, I want to be able to do that next time. And I hope to be able to work with, with film again. I have a documentary I've been working on for, quite a few years and obviously with documentary you can't you can't really use film if it's you know cinema verite and you're you're just observing people on you know a 10-hour day so that requires digital obviously so yeah I mean each each project is its own thing feeling like confident in in our instincts was really really nice like to to feel like we we saw something and we were right and, and we followed our guts. And I think that's something to really take forward to every project is just like, you know, something when you see it and, and just like trusting in that instinct. This kind of idea of the kind of the kind of how we make the creative decisions we make on a film like this, I think is a fairly loaded idea with a lot of baggage for me, at least when it comes to the long take, did the rarefied air of the long take kind of enter into your thinking when it came to how you wanted to execute this? Cause um, part of the reason I bring it up is this film, at least from, from an outside perspective uh, where I'm coming from as a viewer really seems to 
at least consciously or not be making efforts to not fall into that kind of, I would call them almost formal fetishism of the long take, right? Where it's, it feels more motivated by the inherent tension of the story. Because as someone with quite severe social anxiety, like I, I really appreciate the moments when the long take would follow a character and I'd be just biting my nails about the other character. Like, are they going to leave? Please. I feel, I, I, I need proximity. Yeah. <laughs> I think it was really important for us when we started talking about the continuous take, both amongst ourselves and also with Norm was the idea that it, we didn't want it to be about the one take. In fact, we were really hesitant to even mention that we were doing a continuous take when we were doing our publicity and stuff. Uh, when we first started showing the film, we didn't want that to take away from the content and we didn't want people to be paying attention to that. So I think it's great that, that people sometimes watch the film and don't realize it's, it's, a long take until they're three quarters of the way through. Thank you for talking about it as the main subject of this podcast. And <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad this podcast is happening like a year yeah. after the cat's out of the bag. Yeah. yeah. I wanted to ask though now, in general, if you folks have things that you really like or really dislike about the way other films use long takes, things that you learned from, didn't learn from, or just things that you really respond to strongly as viewers yourselves? Well, Victoria was, for me, very inspirational just in terms of the dynamic between between the characters we see on screen. It's It's this like sudden collision of people who don't really know each other placed into the sort of extreme circumstance. And I remember watching that film um, well, we were still kind of talking about the process of, we were very much in development at that point. And I remember watching that film and walking away feeling the way that I kind of hoped that our audience would feel, which is like this, the anxiety of not knowing what's going to happen next and being really trapped in the situation with all of these characters and sort of feeling like you're actually there with them in the room in each moment. And that's what we wanted for this film was for audiences to feel as though they can't escape the situation, um, to feel the same way that Rosie and Isla feel, um, and and to be there in those like uncomfortable, awkward moments. And I felt like Victoria really accomplished that. Yeah, I would agree. I think um, I'm much more attracted to long takes that are, you know, not technical feats. Uh, although Victoria was a huge technical feat. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's not about that. It's about the performance. They're brilliant actors um, and the script is is wonderful. I think, you know, someone like Steve McQueen is really um, uses long. He doesn't, you know, do continuous takes, but he, that that scene in Hunger, which is just um, the two men talking at the table. I don't know if you guys have seen, have you seen Hunger. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. With the smoke is slowly rising to the top of the frame throughout the whole conversation. Yeah. And it's just like the performance is at that, I think it's also about like earning that moment. So the rest of the film, what's added up to that moment allows for that long take to happen and for you to stay engaged and really just take in the performance and take in the dialogue. And yeah, that, that kind of thing's really exciting to me more than like children of men or, you know, it's, it's cool to see that stuff, but it's not really, I think what I like about it. It doesn't involve you as much in the, yeah. in the film itself, right? Yeah. And another film that I saw after we made The Body Remembers that I, I think is just such an incredible film um, is Zacharias Kunuk's latest film, A Day in the Life of Noah Fugituk. Yeah. It's 
such a profoundly moving film and it has very much to do with these incredibly long takes and you know sitting in the stillness of this awkward and really uncomfortable and often enraging interaction um, between the Inuit people who've lived in this place forever and this you know this Canadian settler government representative who's there to basically say your whole life as you know it is about to change and there's just such profound drama in in those quiet moments having to sit there in in these really long takes um, was just so moving I, I can't think of any other film where um, I, I've experienced that sort of those sort of sensations and um, without there having to be really much done on screen other than these you know beautiful performances by the actors the ability of long takes to kind of trap you in that moment is, is part of what really draws me to the form despite myself um for me um actually one film i thought of while watching the body remembers was um james benning's uh, stemple pass um which is way out there um it's it's a two-hour film made of four 30-minute shots. of These are wide shots, um, one taken every three months of a cabin where the Unabomber is writing their manifesto. <laughs> and um, it's essentially nothing, stillness. And then you you basically develop cabin fever along with the Unabomber. It's very messed up. But that, that kind of sense of, hey, I'm experienced the same stretch of time as the person on screen and therefore am better able to empathize with what they're going through because we don't have that disconnect of time to me it connects a lot of the, my favorite long take films. Mm. Yeah. Well, I want to ask a question about um, teaching the audience to watch your film, uh, which is a subject near and dear to my heart as a teacher. W- one mo- specific moment that jumped out on me both times I watched this was um, uh, Rosie's first trip up the elevator. It's the moment in the film to me that is the first time the time we're spending with the character isn't, justified in any traditional sense right um when we're on the bus when we're going over the Kiefer street overpass to me that uh, you know a regular audience member which is myself um might think okay this is world building right but then when we're stuck with our character in an elevator for a good 30 seconds 45 seconds there's no excuse you have to go okay why am i why am i doing this and then the audience learns right yeah i think in the in the editing room which you know was a very short time we spent there but um, those first prologue scenes were the few scenes where we could really edit. And we went back and forth so many times, I think, between having a full one extended take, cutting, jump cutting. Um, how do we set, I guess, sort of, I think this is what you're saying, like how do we set up the audience to watch the rest of the film by putting them in in the space in the way that we want them to sort of view it? Yeah, so I, we did have a lot of those conversations and and we sort of, landed i think what was so beautiful about violet's performance is you know even when she's not doing a lot there's there's just so much happening and i personally i could watch her face for hours and and not be bored and so i think we were really really lucky with her to have that the elevator moment is kind of like the last moment of peace before everything you know takes off and it, it is definitely world building and it's an opportunity to sit with Rosie. And as an Indigenous filmmaker and as an Indigenous person, I think it's really important that we consider the ways that Indigenous people are represented on screen. And so often Indigenous women in particular are viewed through this victim lens. And it was really important for us to make sure that 
That didn't happen with Rosie's character, that she retained power and agency throughout. Um, and it was really important to also humanize her. There's conversation around the ways that white settler audiences are, are comfortable with viewing racialized bodies on screen. And often it comes from this perspective of, of being comfortable with racialized bodies being victimized on screen in a sense that the white settler audience has the power to like intervene and be the white savior. So there is this kind of like paternalistic ideology that informs that relationship with, with the way that racialized bodies are viewed on screen. Um, and so for this film, it was really important that that doesn't happen, that Rosie, again, re retains power and agency and is a human being, not just an Indigenous woman who is the victim of domestic violence. She's so much more than that. And so these moments where we're just sitting with her and seeing her and kind of being able to like feel her spirit and who she is were really important. And yeah, I think the, the elevator scene and the scene where she sits down with her boyfriend's mother in the living room to watch TV and starts to paint her nails. Like there's so much richness and life just to those moments where there isn't really a lot being said. And, you know, we have to really give our art department, raise our hands to them because they did such an incredible job with world building and creating these spaces where there was, you know, so much richness to each of these characters. But yeah, that, that moment where Rosie first takes the elevator and comes home and sits down is such a powerful moment for me because there's, there's complexity and nuance to that relationship um, with her mother-in-law and also with her boyfriend. Um, and, and we see her as this, you know, this young, sweet girl who um, is in a very complicated situation. I often get, got the sense that we were privy to moments that we might not otherwise be privy to if traditional editing had been applied. Moments uh, like you just mentioned after the elevator scene, or for me, the moment that spoke really, really strongly to me was when um, the the uh, taxi driver briefly alludes to his history of substance abuse. Um, and that was such a wonderful little moment because I'm like, wow. And, and virtually any other film, the script note would be like, okay, we don't need that line because that's not a central character in our film. But I couldn't help but think that there's a relationship between that commitment to a long take and that ability to kind of happen upon these incidental character moments, which I really loved. Follow the people that you share the space and time with as well. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Totally true. I have one really nerdy technical question. Of course um, I'm so sorry for this. Yeah, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> Kathleen, your previous film with Norm, Never Say Never Still, that was shot, and correct me if I'm wrong, on 35 millimeter? Yes, two perf. Two perf yeah, 35. two perf 35. So you get the cinemascope aspect ratio. In this one, you shot, and you and Norm and, uh, and Maya all shot on anamorphic 16 mil getting the same aspect ratio, but through a very different means. What led to that change? I'm really curious. Hmm. Well, I think a couple reasons. One, we just felt like 16 was a better, was a better medium visually for this film to have it a little bit grittier, a little bit rougher around the edges. The aspect ratio, I think, I don't know. Maya, do you remember our conversations around that? I think. Uh, yeah. It had to do with the, the space and allowing space for our characters on screen and then also budget was yes partially what informed that decision too <laughs> <laughs> yeah 
Yeah. And also the weight of the, the lightness of the 16 yeah. versus the 35. Mm. Yeah, there were a lot of things that informed that decision. And much of it had to do with logistics, I think. Yeah, but I think, yeah, thinking about the aspect, I think you're right, Maya, was was a lot to do with framing the two characters in the space and getting the maximum sort of flexibility with the world. It's been a long time since we yeah. had those conversations. Yeah, we would have like just wrapped two years ago, I guess. Time flies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I remember, I remember when this was filming, just hearing about like, oh yeah, they're doing a new one. I'm like, great. And that's two years ago. I feel old. But yeah, is there anything that either of you two had in mind that you wanted to discuss? What a lot of people don't realize is how important the script is for the one take. There's a lot of focus on the technical side and the camera and, you know, there's so much that goes into building the space for that one take to happen and for the performance, the performances to really shine. So I would say if people are trying the one take, focus on your script. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure we could do a full other podcast episode with even more to say about the script process from the film. Because it is a really fascinating script for how much it packs into such spare gestures and lines of dialogue. To me, if I've noticed a pattern in, you know, big, grand, showy, formal gestures that work, it's, do you feel like it's germane to the way you see the world, right? To your own personal experiences um, and all the stuff that's gone into making you the person you are. Mm-hmm. Are yeah, you making yeah, formal yeah. decisions because of that? Or are you making formal decisions because you saw it in another movie yeah, and it was cool? Totally. Yeah. That's pretty easy to tell. <laughs> and I think when you're, you know, an emerging filmmaker and just kind of like trying to find your voice it's so easy to make work that is derivative and just you know replicate something you you've seen and thought was cool and I've done that Um, it's almost necessary I think yeah 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 yeah, it's kind of an exercise in figuring out you know who you are as a filmmaker and the kind of stories you want to tell but I would say that you know when approaching doing the long take um, that you're doing it for the right reasons and like Kathleen says the, the material um, and, and the essence of, of the story and why you're, you're telling this story should lead you into the reason why you're, you're doing these long takes. That should inform everything first and foremost. I know Americans can find The Body Remembers When the World Broke Open on Netflix. Um, where can Canadians find it? Numerous places. Uh, iTunes. iTunes, Apple TV, Google Play. It's on demand if you have cable. I think Shaw and Telus. Mm-hmm. And it will be on CBC Gem sometime in the near future. Oh, cool! So you can watch it, folks, you and you will watch it. Yeah, watch <laughs> you just movie. can't go to Netflix and watch it <laughs> unless you go to America. Yeah, yeah, or the UK or Australia or New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> which we can't do right now. <laughs> no. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us for this. This was like an absolute pleasure, and you're two of the filmmakers who. I first we we first kind of talked about when we were designing this whole crazy podcast about specific formal gestures. So thank you. It's been a fulfillment of a goal from the beginning of this. Oh. So thank you. Oh, thank you. Well, guys. Thanks for having us. Yeah. 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 And uh, best of luck with the awards. Knock them dead. Oh, thanks. So. <laughs> Violet better win. If Violet doesn't win, I <laughs> what if you won over Violet? That, I would sure not we'll be comfortable with that situation because Violet is like the heart of the film, and Norm better win right. after you know this conversation. Yes. Norm better win. Yeah. 
Okay. Let's just <laughs> edit this in the next 10 minutes, send this off to the committee. And, yeah. uh, <laughs> <laughs> this time. We haven't the yeah. ballots yet, right? Yeah, yeah no, don't worry. I, I stuffed the ballot boxes, so it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us all today. Paige Smith is our associate producer. And if you enjoyed today's podcast, hey, come on, rate us, review us. It'll help other people discover it. Don't you want other people to hear this stuff? If you want to come on the show, or if you've got an idea for a topic, or if you want to ask a question, which we might answer on the podcast if you ask in advance of our recording, you can get in touch with us by email at filmformally at gmail.com, or you can find us on social media, on Twitter, Facebook, at filmformally. We want to acknowledge that this podcast was recorded on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. See you next time. Beep, beep.